Hey, folks. Um, it's very unlike us at Coastline to start on time. So we're going to break with precedent, and I think we might be ready to begin. Uh, it feels like the people at the back are very far away. Um, but anyway, hello at the back. Um, my name is, uh, is Aid, and along with my wife, Em, who's at the back with our little two-and-a-half-year-old, we have the privilege of leading Coastline Vineyards. Um, maybe some of you saw the video last night and know a little bit about us. Um, we don't normally present like TV presenters. I felt like we were on kind of like a location program by the beach, and they were like, will they choose house number two or house number three? It just it was very odd for us to, to watch ourselves. We were like, oh, yeah. Um, anyway, thank you so much for coming to the seminar. Congratulations for making it towards the back end of the last day of NLC. If you're anything like me, you're probably exhausted and pretty full already. But we really hope, we've been praying for you guys that just the Lord would deposit seeds uh, of just vision and, and possibility and wow, this maybe we could do something a little bit like this. And if we can, these guys can impart something of that, then we would, uh, we would love for that, for that to be the case. But it's my uh, privilege to, to introduce Millie and then Sarah's going to share a little bit and some of the team as well. Um, so I'll let them introduce themselves and the, and, the, and the context and the backstory and all that kind of stuff. But it's, a, it's an opportunity for me just to kind of honour uh, publicly and to celebrate these guys because they're um, obviously very dear friends of mine um, and it's uh, uh, an absolute joy and privilege to lead alongside them. Um, even though Em and I bookended that video, we don't take any credit for this. Obviously, Jesus gets all the glory, right? But um, we just kind of I just, yeah, just riding the wave of the Holy Spirit, really, and it's a beautiful thing. So we hope to share with you something of the journey and the experiences, the mistakes that we've made, some of the wins and highlights. We've got story after story after story after story that they can share. But, um, yeah, we're very excited about uh, all that the Lord will do over this next uh, hour or so. Um, should I just pray for us and then hand over to Millie and, uh, and she can... Why don't you maybe just place a hand on your heart. Um, I feel the Lord's just going to deposit some really beautiful stuff in many of us. So, Lord, we just invite your Holy Spirit here again, Lord. It has been an incredible couple of days where you've grown us and stretched us and shaped us. And uh, in this next hour or so that we have to... Uh, to, to learn all about just our experience in our context of missional community in uh, the beautiful ward of, of Boscombe. Um, Lord, would you impart something to everyone in this room? Would you sow seeds of the kingdom, just dreams and visions and ideas? Um, just start to birth something in each of us because of it. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Amen. So please put your hands together for my great friend, Millie Hawley. Thanks, Aid. Um, I've got a little bit of a time check here on the world's heaviest watch. So I don't know where to put it. I'm going to put it over here. Um, hope it doesn't fall off Ed. <laughs> John's face. Um, <clears throat> so, so great to see you all. Like Aid said, well done for making it to this seminar. Um, that excites me a little bit because you must really want to be here um, <laughs> if you are here. Um, so just to recap briefly, um, yeah, if you saw the, the video last night, so we're from a a really tiny little pocket of the world, um, Boscombe down in Bournemouth. Um, our wards and the neighbouring ward that we live in is in the bottom 1% of uh, the well, highest deprivation in the country. And um, we've just been on a, a journey for the last kind of five years of 
really, what does it look like for the kingdom to come in uh, in Boscombe, in Churchill Gardens, on earth like it is in heaven? So our dream is that one day in the new earth, I'd, we'd head back to the Boscombe of the new earth, and it wouldn't feel that different because so much of the kingdom had come. And, um, and uh, honestly, it's, just, it's been a very surprising journey. It's been... Uh, it, carries on to be a very interesting journey and um yeah we'll just I mean we really just want to share some of the I suppose the foundational principles of um what life looks like for us um but I really just want to say from the off you know community is about people and uh this isn't a replicable model you can't just pick this up and dump it in your context and hope that it hope for the best we we really what we want to do is just encourage you to follow our footsteps as long as they follow Jesus's for your concept for your context and then from there um really follow Jesus because he has plans and he has purposes and he's already on the move in your situations and in your contexts and um it will look entirely different to ours and so take whatever you want to from this, take nothing from this. Um, I wish I had the answers for your communities and your contexts and your networks, um, but I don't. <laughs> we were only beginning to learn ours. And so, um, yeah, I mean, be encouraged and, and uh, hopefully, yeah, there'll just be bits that you can kind of take from this. Um, so, what is a missional community? That's probably a good place to start. Uh, Jeff van der Stelt, who's a really great thinker around this stuff, says that a missional community is a group of believers empowered by the Holy Spirit on mission to a pocket of people. And really what makes a missional community distinctive maybe to a, a church plant um, is that there's something very significant about the pocket, the pocket of people. It might be, as in our context, um, a very traditional neighborhood. Um, so with a, being in a very area of high deprivation, um, People do their lives within a quarter mile of their homes. Lots of people don't have cars. Um, we have our little high street, which is about a five-minute walk away. And so really, our missional community looks very much like a neighborhood. Um, but you may be in the middle of Surrey. You could be in the middle of a housing estate up north. Um, and so there are networks as well, these kind of third places that people meet in. And so that pocket could be a gym, it could be a school, it could be uh, the Muslim community, it could be the motorbike club, it literally could be anything. And so really as we think about missional community, we're thinking about what is the pocket of people and who are the pocket of people that we're trying to, trying to reach? Who are the pocket of people that we long to see the kingdom come in and through and for? Um, and so as we look at missional community and we look at our lives, really what we begin to do is to reorientate our lives around the rhythms of the people that we're trying to meet. Um, so for us, that uh, may look entirely different to you. So our neighborhood is really slow. Lots of people don't work. So the thing that the people have most of is time. They have endless, abundant amount of time. Um, there's a lot of our neighbors, uh, have um, are on benefits, so they're a lot of them are very poor. They're just barely making ends meet, um, and so for us, in order to be able to be on mission to these people and to this community of Churchill Gardens, we've really had to slow our lives down. And so for us, that looks like uh, in our two community houses working part time. 
So we work part-time during the week because we believe that actually work is a really beautiful model of the kingdom. We want to demonstrate work to our neighbours because we long for our neighbours to stand on their own two feet. I long for a Boscombe where when the benefit gets stopped overnight that people don't lose their homes. That's what I long to see and work is a way that uh, we can help stabilise people and so we want to model that and so we work part-time but then that also means um, that we have then a lot of free time and that is a great sacrifice. That's a really great sacrifice and so many of our um, guys in our community houses and around the square have made huge sacrifices for this and And I say this so humbly that in order to be able to be on mission and to see the kingdom come, it may cost virtually everything that you have. And I've got friends who have first-class degrees who came out of university and are now working in leisure centres and we're working in um, shopping... um, What are they called? Shops. (laughs) Working in shops who are... um, Retail, thanks. Um, uh, Yeah, working in the harvester in order that they can be able to have that kind of time. Um, one of our lovely families, amazing families, for them that's looked like homeschooling their son. So um, dad is a, is a paramedic, works really, really hard in some really difficult shifts. And actually the time then that they get together, if, if Tobes was at school, you know, there'd be very minimal time that they could really spend together. And so they've decided to homeschool Tobes so they can bring him up in our community, within our neighbourhood, and then be able to have that time together and be able to have the space and to have the time to invest in the community. And that is partly a sacrifice. You know, that looks like a sacrifice of income for Hannah. That's looked like um, a sacrifice for their family. But in doing it, there is something so incredibly beautiful that happens. And I'm not saying that you should all go out and work part-time because the reality is, well, that might not be the rhythm of your neighborhood that you would need to do that or the rhythm of your network that you would need to, um, to work part-time or, or to do that. But it might be that you and a bunch of friends decide to put all of your kids in the same school and you begin to reorientate your life around that school and around that place and around the PTA, and you begin to bring the kingdom in that school, it might look like a bunch of you going, hey, we're all going to go and join the same gym. We're all going to go, we're going to cancel our gym subscriptions somewhere else, and we're all going to go and we're going to begin to orientate our lives around this particular place and these particular people. So um, that's a bit of a background. Um, There are a couple of things that we... uh, I suppose little little catchphrases or little things that we uh, have. One of them is this, presence and presence. So um, there's something about being present somewhere that is really key. So for us, to live in our neighborhood gives a very different authority there. Um, Maya Angelou, she says this beautiful thing. She says, if you've come here to help us, you're wasting your time. But if you come because your liberation is caught up in ours, then let's work together. And there's something about presence, particularly in urban poor communities, that gives a different authority, that gives a different say over the way that that community functions, that way that neighborhood happens. And... um, And so for us, we all live within a five-minute walk of Churchill Gardens. I mean, you can look out of our kitchen window and see the houses of of all of our other other community houses. And really, there's something about being present that then can also give you presence. Because we can just be there somewhere and never have an impact. 
You can't just be somewhere and never see the kingdom come. And so then presence in the second term is that we begin to live intentional lives of bringing and seeing the kingdom. Um, so one of those things for us at number 10 is where we get our milk. Really simple. We don't get our milk from the uh, local supermarket. We get our milk from the corner shop. And um, there's a rhythm then that happens as we go out every other day and go and get milk. And sometimes that journey, which is about 100 steps, can take 45 minutes because of <laughs> it's really annoying when you're waiting for a cup of tea at home and so there's no milk. Um, um, so yeah, we get milk in our, uh, uh, at our corner shop. And there's just this really beautiful thing that's happened. It's a very small, intentional thing that we did. Um, and our lovely friend, I'll call her Sarah, works uh, in our corner shop. And um, Johnny, who I live with, was going to get milk one day a couple of years ago. And... Uh, uh, had noticed that Sarah's phone had smashed and she is brilliant and loud and gobby and just the most brilliant person you can imagine. So she was there whinging to the entire shop about the fact her phone had broken. And so Johnny said, hey, look, I'll go and get that fixed for you. So he went and he got her phone fixed and she literally could not fathom that anybody would ever dream or think to do that. And so her, um, fixed her phone, but then what happened as a result of that is every time we go in to get milk, and Johnny had said, well, look, it's just because Jesus loves you, and this is just a gift from Jesus. Every time we would go and get milk, she would want to talk about Jesus. And so she'd have a shop full of people, and she'd be like, so, anxiety then. So what does Jesus think about that? And what does Jesus think about this? And what about that? And then she just began to become connected in with our missional community and became family with us and friends with us. And now she gave her life to Jesus. And now she's, you know, thriving on her journey. And that was just because we went and got milk from the corner shop. You know, it's so simple. We all need milk just get it somewhere intentionally, um, and the excitement then of seeing that journey happen. And I think, yeah, there is something that then, um, as we begin to live those intentional lives and those uh, rhythms that become even just a little bit intentional, we, uh, it makes evangelism really easily easy. So one of the things that we did was put um, a bench outside our house. Um, so in the summer, um, if I'm working or need to send some emails, sometimes I'll just take my laptop out and sit outside and do it on the bench because then invariably people are just passing and then they chat and then anything happens from a chat in our neighborhood. Which leads me on to the next thing um, is that, oh, um, is to be interruptible and available. I think bringing the kingdom is really easy because I think all that Jesus is looking for is anybody who'll be available and will be interruptible, who'll stop short, long enough just to take the time with someone. And I see this all the way through the scriptures. I see Jesus constantly being interrupted. He's always on his way somewhere. And then something comes in from left field. And now suddenly we have it recorded for 2,000 years. And I just, I love that. And I, I think in our culture of busyness, what John was talking about today, I just think sometimes it's the enemy's way of just... Um, sucking the, the possibilities of the kingdom out from us. And so to be interruptible and available is a, an absolute critical part of, of who we are and of what we do. And um, Jay Pathak, who wrote a great book called The Art of Neighboring, and he talks a lot about being interruptible and available. And um, it's just, yeah, a phenomenal, phenomenal book if you want to reach neighborhoods. One of the first books that we read 
and really how we started, we, that was literally how we started, just to be interruptible um, and available. Because at the end of the day, I think Jesus is all about restoration. It really is why he came, and it really is why he exists. And when we begin to, like make, uh, when we begin to live lives that make no sense without a gospel explanation, when a bunch of 20s with, first, with degrees quit their careers and go and live in the middle of a neighborhood, and for us, opening our home in a neighborhood where there is no trust and inviting people in to eat with us, it becomes really questionable. And so the, the thing I always want you to think is, well, what does it look like for me to live a questionable life in my context? What would that take? What does it do? What, what is it in the way that I can love and live and spend time with people that triggers something that says, that surprises them? Because all the way through the New Testament, what I see is actually Paul imploring the believers to, to, to do that. Like, live in this way. If we live in this way, our lives become so questionable that the only answer we get to give is a gospel one. Like, that really is the story of so much of the story of the early church. Don't live like that. Live like this. If we live like this, you know, people will come to know Jesus. And so, um, yeah, that's what um, we long to do. And so we long to see the the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, like I said. And it looks like the fullness of the kingdom. It looks not just like people's spiritual well-being, but relational and physical and emotional. And we're on such a journey with that. And it's not just us. It's the coastline missional community and that little part of Boscombe that are doing that. There's a, a wider kingdom thing going on, which is where relationships with other churches is so important. Because not one church can do it. Not one church can see the kingdom. You know, we are the broad spectrum of the whole of the church um, for, for an enormous kingdom. And so, yeah, I'd really encourage you to, um, yeah, just think, just to take that, like to live in a way that surprises people, to surprises the world. Um, and I often think it's a bit like... Um, uh, that we're called to make, a, like, it's all like, it's like a trailer of the movie that's to come. So we create foretastes of the kingdom. Because you know when you go and see a trailer for a movie, you're like, I want to see that movie. Like, that's what a great trailer does to you. And really, that's the same with the kingdom. We want to create a foretaste of the earth that's to come. And it looks like such a great spectrum of things. It looks like family, and it looks like relationships, and it looks like people eating good food, not takeaway food that they're cooking in a in a microwave and so one of the things that we're involved with is a local food growing enterprise we grow food as a community and then that goes into subsidized food boxes then for the neighborhood that's an incredible kingdom thing there's a social enterprise that happens there's this whole range of whole range of things and for me it's all kingdom and we begin to see the kingdom in those moments and in the in the small things because the joy is that um Whoever shows up the most consistently in a place gets to shape the culture. So for our neighborhood, the drug dealers have been showing up there for the last 30 years. If we can show up more consistently than the drug dealers and outlast them, then what we have is a culture of the kingdom. And that is what is really exciting because when a group of people, when a family of people do that together. You, you can't really do that on your own. But as a community comes together to do that, to demonstrate the life of the kingdom, we begin to see it. We begin to, yeah, to shape the culture. And this really came to the fore for us only about two months ago. So a couple of months ago, um, 
we had uh, quite a scary night where too much electricity came down from the electricity board and set fire to about 10 homes in our neighborhood and set uh, an, uh, put another 200 homes without power. Um, so our other community house, the, the electric box went up in flames. Um, so the girls had to get out. And, um, and we, but, but what we saw from that was absolutely incredible. So you saw um, the, our local councillor, Chris Wakefield, uh, in the video. Chris, like he said, has always been slightly edgy <laughs> of the vineyard, slightly edgy of anything religious. And when that had happened, and obviously these um, you know, fires had happened, and people without electricity, um, they showed up the next day, and they were about to put a full police presence on the park, because they thought, well, what we're going to see when we get there is... Um, people looting each other's houses, we're going to see thieving, we're going to see all the things that our neighbourhood was known for. But when they got to Churchill Gardens, all they saw was people opening their homes to each other, people who had power opening their homes to people without. They saw um, a community coming together. And the write-ups in the paper and from our local council literally says, I wish I'd got it to show you, what has happened to Churchill Gardens? Question mark. <laughs> Do you, and it says, do you know your neighbours? Question mark, because they do in Churchill Gardens. And there was this moment where our councillor just began to see, like, oh. And we realised, oh, the culture's changed. And it took that for us to, you know, it was such an encouragement to us, because not only were we doing it, but others were doing it. And so that overspill of the blessings of the kingdom of God had fallen, has fallen over our neighborhood. And it's come through the Joy Cafe, and it's come through people finally getting to know each other, and it's come through what was isolation. And now people have relationships with each other. Um, and in fact, I was talking to Chris just before Christmas, and he was saying that he is now saying to other counselors, look guys, if you need to go and sort an area out, just send a bunch of Christians in. <laughs> Like literally, <laughs> which I just think is, is brilliant. Um, so how does that happen? I'm going to hand over to Sarah. So Sarah is my lovely housemate. And um, she just carries a really beautiful heart. We've poached her all the way from the States. Um, she's been a friend for many years and finally agreed to come and, well, it didn't take much convincing, did it? It really did. Come to live with us. But she's just going to, yeah, share a little bit about family and about how that kind of culture can come. Thanks, Nels. Yeah, so uh, Mills mentioned it a little bit there, but we do this in the context of family. We always do it within the context of relationship and family because family is everything. It's, it's so important to the Lord. He is always all about relationship. He's always all about family. I mean, think of who he is. Like, we as Christians... is always blows my mind. We believe in this Trinitarian God, right? Where he's Father, Son, and Spirit. He's three, but he's one. And they're in such deep relationship with one another, where they're mutually submitting to one another, mutually lifting each other up, that they become one. Like, that's who our God is. And that's an example of family. You know, look at Jesus. Like, his whole life, right, most of his life, 30 years, he was just doing family. He was just learning how to be a son. He was learning how to be a brother. And then when he starts his big official full-time ministry career, he sees these incredible wild things. He sees 
food multiplied and the dead raised and healings and deliverance and does these amazing teaches and all this great, great stuff. But what was he doing the vast majority of his time? He was just hanging out with his mates. He was just walking along the road, having chats with his 12 friends, having relationship and family with them. You see this over and over and over again in the Bible. It's, it's the whole story of the Bible. It's just a story about family. It's this dad who just wants his kids back at all costs. And this bridegroom who's desperately searching for his beautiful bride. And the best brother ever who just wants to teach us how to be a co-heir with him. Like the whole thing's about family. And so if you want to know how to steward a move of God, if you want to know how to release kingdom, I'm telling you, it's family. Like I promise you, family is what's going to change the world. It's what has changed the world. I've, I've seen it at the table at Churchill Gardens change people's lives. You can probably think about your own lives and people that you consider family that have completely transformed you. It's because Jesus is always about family. If he wasn't, if he wasn't about relationship, we would still be under the law. Like, if he didn't want relationship with you, he would be quite content just to leave you to deal with the laws and sort yourself out. Praise him that he didn't leave us like that because he wants relationship with you and he wants relationship with your neighbors. And so he says it um, in John 13. He says it this way. I'm going to read uh, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, all people. So we are family with one another, and everyone gets to discover Jesus. It says all people will know this. All, not just like other people in your churches are going to know it, not just like your best friend at uni. No, all are going to know this. So we're family, and then all we have to do is invite people into that family. It's the easiest thing. It's the best. You just love one another, and then when someone else comes along, you're like, oh my gosh, come. We have this great family. Like, we have this great dad. Don't you want to know it? Like, come on, come join our family. It's so fun. It's so easy. And so, you know, that's what we're doing. And all it really is, is looking at someone and saying, I see you. I know you. You have value. Even in all the mess, I love you. And we see a lot of people in a lot of mess. But we get to, we have the, the privilege and the honor of looking them in the eye and say, I see you in your mess, and I still really love you. And that's what Jesus did for each of us, right? He sees us in our mess, and he goes, it's okay, I still really love you. And so that's what we're doing. So for us, um, you saw some of this stuff on the video. 
but it looks like meals. It looks like dinners. So twice a week, we invite any and everyone <laughs> to come have dinner in our house. Um, you never know who's going to turn up. You never really know how many people are going to turn up. But somehow, there's always enough. You know, Jesus is the same God who multiplied the fish. Like, he's still that God. So I'm telling, I'm one of the, the main cooks because I really enjoy cooking and it's just like a little passion of mine. And um, the number of times I've seen the same pot serve 12 people and then the next day it serves 25. Like, that's a miracle, yeah. It's an actual miracle. Like, there's always enough in our house. People come to the door and they do this sheepish little, oh, is there enough, are you sure? And I'm like, no, there's always enough. Come on in, bring your friends. There's always enough. Like, we sometimes we play a little game with Holy Spirit, and we'll ask him how many people are going to be there. And there was this one night, and gosh, Holy Spirit's so funny sometimes. Ugh. So I'm like, okay, Holy Spirit, how many people? And he tells me 18. Millie asks him, I think it was you that did this, he says 17. Priscilla, who she's, um, she's moved to London now, but she was in our missional community. She asks, he tells her, 17 and a half. I'm like, pre, there's not gonna have half a person, like, yeah. Wouldn't you know it, 17 adults and one kid showed up. I was like, this is 17 and a half. Oh my gosh. Like, like he knows. He knows your neighbors. He knows them. And he wants to invite you into that knowing them. Right? Um, a big thing, you can, that, you see that? So you notice we eat around the table. That's a really big deal for us. We're not a soup kitchen. And I'm definitely, definitely not knocking soup kitchens or food banks. They're so, so important. Um, and very necessary, but that's not what we are. We're a family, and so in our family, you come in, you sit around the table. We're going to get you a plate of whatever we've made. We're going to have a conversation. We're going to ask you questions about yourself because we want to know you, and there's this beautiful thing that happens when you look someone in the eye, and you're sharing a meal, and it offers them such dignity and they realize in that moment, I'm not a project. Like, I'm a person. Like, I, I'm a friend. And that's what we offer them. We offer them this beautiful friendship because they're worthy of that. They're not just worthy of, of, you know, a plate of food that's gonna let them survive another day. They're worthy of dignity and value. And that's what we offer them when we sit around this table. It seems like such a small thing, but, but it's not to them. The amount of times I've heard someone say, I haven't done this since I was a kid. Like, it's so many people. And it's really easy. Another thing we do is we drink a lot of coffee and tea. A lot. <laughs> so we have um, pretty much an open door policy. So all day, most days, you get people knocking on our doors and, uh, and you just invite them in, you have a chat, you give them a cup of coffee or tea. And I mean no offense when I say this, I know we do have some instant coffee lovers in the room, 
No. <laughs> I, I know I'm a bit of a coffee snob. I'll admit to it. But when I take the time to make that person a full, like, proper... We, we get beans from the local roastery. We grind them up ourselves. And I'm telling you, when I... Neil's one of our neighbors. He's one of my favorites. When I take the five minutes or so to make him that proper cup of coffee, his face lights up. He can't believe I would pull out the AeroPress and I would, you know, spend the time grinding the beans and doing all this stuff just for him. He loves it. We show them their value in these really, like, seemingly insignificant things, but it's not insignificant. So we do that. Um, you saw the Joy Cafe up there. We do, uh, we do family tea. So for... Uh, like families with younger kids, we do a separate dinner for them that's a bit more kid-friendly. Um, so it's like earlier in the day and stuff like that. But the vast majority of what we do is just be intentional with friendships. Like there's one guy, and you're, you have to be consistent with it. There's this one guy, and um, he's yet to come into our house. And I still don't know if he's like cool with me. Like... I can't quite decide. But I see him outside his, his house, and I always say hi, and we always have a nice chat, and I always invite him over. He's yet to say yes. But I'm being intentional about my friendship with him. And that's all it takes, is being intentional with your friendships and being consistent with them. So that's just some examples of what it looks like for us. Um, it's going to look different for you, just as Mills was saying. The other reason why we do it in family besides it's biblical and Jesus really loves it, and it's kind of his whole heart, is that it's absolutely necessary. Like, Mills can't do it on her own. I can't do it on my own. Penny can't do it on her own. Like, we would die if we tried to do it on our own. Genuinely, I think we would die. So we need one another. We need one, each, one another's completely unique gifts and passions and pieces of the kingdom that each of you carry like, that's what your community needs. That's what your family's going to need. So we, we need to be inspiring that in one another. We also need each other so we can protect each other. It's really easy just to keep saying yes to these people's needs because there's a lot of need. But we have family, and we do this in the context of family so that when I'm having a crap day, Mills can look at me and say, do you need to get out of Boscom? And I say, yes, I do, I really do, you know? Or if I decide, well, I can just like kind of bend one of the house rules. If Seb's there to be like, mm, you can't do that, Sarah, it's not allowed. Like just last week, uh, it, we have a rule that only one person, or you need more than one person in the house in order to let someone in, right? So it was, I was in the house, and one of our housemates, Seb, I knew he was leaving, but one of our friends came to the door, and we've known this guy for years, and he loves Jesus, but he's also a recovering drug addict, and so some days are great, some days aren't great. And I let him in because I love him, and I make him a nice cup of coffee, which is very important. And Seb's, like, literally running out the door, and he sees what's happening, and he's like, so he comes in, and he, he can tell I'm, like, not really sure. Like, 
I don't think he's sober. Ooh, how do I, now I've let him in. Ooh. And so he stays with me. He said, make sure that I'm okay. And he waits 30 minutes until the guy eventually leaves in order to go to his dinner plans. You need each other. You need one another to remind each other of your dreams, to fight for each other, to keep each other healthy. You're not supposed to do this on your own. It's not what Jesus wants. And ultimately, it's not what your community needs. It's not what your neighborhood's going to need. They need an example of family. And that's what you get to be. You get to be family with one another and then invite people into it. So we have some kind of rhythms and um, boundaries and guidelines of how we found to kind of keep us healthy. Um, and Mills is going to talk about that. Thanks, eh? Um, yeah, so I thought we'd just... Because, I mean, that's sometimes you're just like, well, how actually does this work? Um, and we're still exploring this. And one of the most important things with community, especially missional community, is that it is an organism. It's, um, it's people. So it will always change. It will always grow. It will never really look exactly the same for a long period of time. But there are some principal foundations which are really, really helpful that we found. Um, the first one is this. So really, we can kind of organize our lives, we orientate our lives around three areas, the up, the in, and the out. Um, up, obviously, being our relationships with God, in being relationships with one another, and then out into our neighborhoods. Um, the thing about this is, um, it really is a, is a tension. So a trampoline only works because there's tension. Um, and really, missional community in this sense only works because there's a tension. So if you're veering too much one way, um, there'll be just an, an uh, it'll go off bit off kilter. So if we are uh, a missional community that is um, too far up, for example, um, we will have amazing times with Jesus. We'll have great times with him. Um, but we're not really reaching anybody. We're not really on mission to anyone. If we have a community that's too far in, we'll be a great holy huddle. It'll be super pastoral. It'll be amazing. It'll be... Um, Everyone will feel really loved and cared for, but we may not be brilliantly spending time with Jesus and also really not on mission to the people that we're seeking to bring the kingdom to. Equally, if we're too far out, um, you're going to end up with a lot of burnt out, tired, exhausted, disgruntled people. And so really, it's looking at, well, what is, is keeping these three in tension? Um, often, if, if you become leaders of your missional community, uh, you'll have a natural bent towards one of these. And so you need others within your family, within that community, who are a bit more the others. So for those in our community who are more in, then when they get twitchy, because I have a natural bent here, when they get a bit twitchy... I'm like, ah, oh, we need to spend some time together. Same with the up. If it's like people, a lot of our um, community who are, you know, that kind of upward focused, although we all are, when they're starting to feel dry and like, oh, I'm like, ah, we need to be spending some time with Jesus. And so you begin to kind of listen to each other in the kind of the different pools. And so, yeah, that's the tension. And this is, um, I suppose this model is not so much a, it is a model. It's not a model. It really is um, a kind of understanding of how communities work and function. Um, so for ex it basically starts in the center here um, as the individual. So as individuals, this is the very first layer of community. So we're, okay, so what does it look like for the up as an individual? What does it look like for my personal relationship with Jesus? Um, 
in? How am I resting? How am I, is my Sabbathing going? Am I getting too burnt out? And how am I being a disciple who is making disciples? Am I, how's my in? Am I, um, sorry, Joel's just come in and <laughs> sent me off. Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> so he's dancing at the back. So frustrating. Um, yeah, I missed that. Anyway, um, and so next one then is twos and threes. So the next kind of layer of community, especially like us, we are, there's about 25 of us. Like, we are not all going to be in each other's pockets. We're not all going to know everything about each other. Like, it is just not realistic. And I think part of the challenge of leading missional community and being one is, is knowing that, is knowing we're not going to be in deep relationship with everyone, but really making sure that we are in twos and threes, you know, making sure that... Um, that that we're just hanging out together and having fun, even twos and threes. Maybe it's going to the cinema and doing and whatever. We have a part of a guideline that really try and do everything in twos because um, it's biblical and just for safety and all the rest of it. So we try and do two th- things in twos. Um, and doing Bible studies and hanging out together and every now and again someone will be like, hey, we're going to just, uh, we're just going to watch a talk at our house if anybody wants to come. And, and so people will pop over and it might be just two or three doing that. You know, it's just a very natural, organic, just part of rhythm of life. We then have uh, our next layer, which is, um, so we have two community houses and um, um, that, but that could be, you know, like units. So obviously there are families that are within that unit. So it looks slightly different. Our guys who live in the community houses have a slightly different um, take up, I suppose, a slightly different commitment. So we have a house night every week. Do you know the number of communities, especially if you're living together, fall apart over housework? Honestly, it is the slyest, biggest destructor of community. And so we have a house night each week and we all get together at six o'clock and we clean the house. And we do that every single week. And that is a fundamental part of our community because without it, we would rip each other to shreds because (laughs) you know what it's like, like when you've got different stands of cleanliness and everything like that. Um, we also then, we take communion together that evening, and so uh, one of us will lead communion, um, and it'll just be a piece of our testimony or story, um, and then we'll just do something together. So some weeks we're hanging out, some weeks we are um, doing something Jesus-y, um, some weeks we're just having a how you doing, um, but they're just really precious times. Um, And then our wider community. So uh, our kind of broad community, obviously, is made up of, um, yeah, 24, 25 of us. And so really, there are rhythms that we have that are missional rhythms. And so whether that is Hannah um, runs a Bible club at our local school, you know, we've done mentoring. There are things that we, our local community have asked us to do that we do, you know, run a pop-up shop at Christmas. Um, There's very little bits. So we have these kind of wider missional rhythms that anyone can just dip in and out of and commit to. Um, Once a month, we gather as a whole community um, and we do it on a Sunday afternoon and we share stories and we um, read scriptures together and we kind of get a bit of teaching on a particular area of of our mission. And then in... As a wider community, we try and retreat once a year um, and just kind of hang out as much as we can at different times. Um, And then this is the nugget that surrounds us, the pastoral care. Um, In our context, obviously in an urban poor community where there's a lot of 
drug addiction where people's lives are so messy and there's just so much heartache. Um, we, this is absolutely essential. I think we would have fallen apart without pastoral care. So uh, everybody has a mentor, and that's somebody older, um, out just who is part of Coastline Vineyard, who we just meet with every month, kind of to sort out this bit in here, just making sure we're sorting our stuff out. Because if we're not sorting our stuff out, then how on, on earth can we bring the kingdom um, outside of it? And this is an ongoing journey, this individual bit in here, because... Um, if you want to know what your stuff is, live in community. <laughs> there is nothing, nothing that will bring up your stuff like living in community. But it's also the safest place for your stuff to come up. Um, and so these, yeah, our mentors really help us process that, make sure that we're healthy. Um, that's the oversight of the church. So John is my direct oversight. And um, he will meet me every month and we'll just chat things through. And he's our greatest source of encouragement. Um, and... Um, and we also have uh, just families within the church with spare bedrooms. So if we do need to get out of Boscombe, which invariably you do, because uh, it, it can get quite oppressive, um, we've just got places we can just bolt to and go away to. Um, and without that wider pastoral care, I'm really not sure how long we would have lasted. Like, it is the cocoon that keeps us going. Um, and it's, yeah, just a really for us has been a really essential kind of um, part. That's something that's grown over the years. Um, really, when we started, we, we just started with two of us, in a, three of us in a house. Um, and so, yeah, it, that's, it's just already grown from a very, very small beginning. Um, so, a few little tips. And I, I just give you a few tips just to um, really get you started and get you thinking. Like I say, this isn't just a, a, a model that you can just take, you really need to explore in your context. So I'm hoping that these will be a few things that you can help sort out your context, uh, with your context. So number one, uh, community is an organism. It will change and it will grow. Um, don't be afraid of that. Uh, what it looks like now for us after four and a half years is no way what it was when we were like three of us in a house that many years ago. Like, it is completely different. And so, um, because the people that you are reaching our people, and they're not static. And as a community, the people who come and join you have their own gifts, and they're also not static. And so, because it is an organism, um, yeah, it will grow and it will change. This, I couldn't, this is absolutely critical to beginning a missional community, whether it's to a network, whether it's to a neighborhood, um, is to listen. So we probably spent the first year just listening to our neighborhood. And um, it's what uh, I think John Tyson was talking about this morning was the humility that we go in. So often when we go in and as churches and we start things, we, um, we, just, we have an idea about what we think that should be and we go and do it. But I tell you what, if you listen long enough to your neighborhood, they will tell you how to reach them. I promise you that. And so you just start small and you begin to listen. And Tim Chester has um, some fantastic questions about understanding your context, um, about questions that you can begin to use to listen to your neighborhood. Things like, where are the missional places? Where, where is it that people meet? Where do they experience community? Um, when are the missional moments? What are the rhythms of the neighborhood? How do people organize their time? One of the brilliant ones is, what are the gospel stories that your neighborhood tells themselves? So, um, 
there's a gospel story for us that's particularly around, um, like around addiction, because that's a lot of our neighbourhood are in addiction. And so there's a, um, with heroin and crack, the actual feelings that heroin and crack give you are the really similar feelings that the true version that Jesus gives us, that wholeness, that completeness, that security, that feeling more alive than you've ever felt. And so that's a gospel story for our neighbourhood because they know that feeling. They know the feeling of crack and they know the feeling of heroin. And so as we bring that gospel story of uh, this, true ver- this true version, this, this true freedom, this true healing, um, it's an incredibly powerful story that we can use to connect with people. Now, if you're in like the middle of London in Canary Wharf, that's not going to be the gospel story. <laughs> it's going to be something else. And so you begin to learn the gospel stories of your neighborhood. Where is their redemption? Where is their... Um, those things. And so I've got loads of copies of that because they printed too many, which is great. So if you want to take one, just take that into your neighborhoods, into your contexts, and spend a year, six months doing that. Get to know people. And I'll tell you what, you'll begin to see a missional community form. Respond where there's need. This links onto that. Don't just head in and um, assume that you know. Just respond as need comes up. Because as we do that, Actually, there's just amazing kingdom fruit that happens. And so that's really what we did. And we actually just went and asked. We asked the school, hey, like, what do you need? And they they said to us, could you come in and mentor our most deprived kids? We said to our youth service, what do you need? And they were like, we've only got enough money to try and get kids into work. Could you just come and run some football? And so we just start to do those things um, and invariably see the kingdom come. Um, start small. Add rhythms as you need them. I asked this to Shane Claiborne. I met him once and I said, as we were starting out, and I was like, what is your number one top tip? And he was like, start small. Add rhythms as you need them. Because what we can do is we can go, we're going to start a missional community and we're going to pray five times a day and we're going to do this and we're going to pull all our money and we're going to... And literally, you can't sustain it because it's just a complete world change and a complete life change. Um, And then you can just feel like giving up. So just start small um, and add them in as you need them. So we added house nights in as we needed them when we realized we can't function without these. We added weekly prayer and worship because we we couldn't function without it. Um, We've done some things that we've just not kept up. And so they're rhythms that we've just put to bed. And that's fine because it's an organism. It grows. It changes. So just, yeah, that's a great one. Add things as you need them. Don't throw money at it to begin with. So when we began, and I love this about stewardship in the vineyards, I think is a great model, uh, is you just begin, and if the Holy Spirit's on it, then begin to invest in it. Um, For our neighborhood particularly, but I think in in lots of contexts, um, people people in our neighborhood are under the mercy of of projects. So whether that's under the mental health team, whether that's under the benefits, they're at the mercy of services. So we never wanted to be a service to people. Um, we all work part-time. We don't get paid to do this. They're really, apart from a, a ministry budget that has significantly just grown over the years, it is possible to do these things without um, loads of money. And when we have money, we feel like we need to get results. And that can just kill a missional community dead in its tracks because we stop listening and we just start feeling like we need results. Um, and so we're no longer then in solidarity with people. Um, we're just trying to you know, get results. And so taking money out of the equation is a really easy way of just helping that. Trust who you're sending. Um, So this is particularly for church leaders. Um, 
And I, I just, I say with this, with the utmost humility, um, especially if you're sending your people, your 20s, um, into urban poor communities, and, and this, anyone can do this, not just people in their 20s, but in the vineyard, we've spent a long time saying to people, there is a cause to live for, there's a cause to die for, um, there's a cause to give your whole lives for, and then we've not given them a platform to do that. This is a great platform with which to do that. Um, but you are sending people into the darkest parts, potentially, of your town. And there is a real, for the shepherds among you, for the pastors among you, there is a deep security that you have to have to send them out. Because, not to be too morbid about it, but they, they could die. Like, and, and that is the reality. And I, you know, there are some conversations that I've had to pick up the phone to John to. And I've had to say, John, somebody wants to kill us. John, um, uh, some drug dealers have just stolen my car and Penny's chased them down. John, the Polish mafia want to get into the house and we've realised we can open it with an ice cream lid. Um, John, I'm stoned on magic mushrooms accidentally. John. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> uh, so that's a good story. Um, but these, I mean, these are all conversations I've had to have with John, who is our, my oversight and our assistant pastor. And it is the reality. And what can happen is, and we put boundaries in and we try and be as safe as possible. But the reality is, if you're heading into the darkest places of your town, those places aren't safe. And, um, and things can happen and they do happen. And uh, things have happened. And it, if it wasn't for the security of our leaders, who then scoop us up, pick us up, brush us off, dust us off, and then hurl us back out again, we, we wouldn't. If they, if they had pulled us out, if they tried to control it, if they didn't trust us, um, well, we wouldn't be here, and it would just be a very different story. And so as church leaders, if, if this is something that you want to read, you know, want people in your churches to reach in the poorest part of their communities, like you just have to do a deep soul search to know whether you're secure enough to let them go do it. If you're secure enough to let them die you know it, it's a difficult question but um and also for those of you that are going and being sent out there is um it's just yeah just honoring the leadership of your churches and honoring um them because there's this this family there's this mutual kind of relationship and and we have so needed the with coastline vineyard we've so needed to be hemmed and loved and cared for them and it works beautifully and we've seen our church change as a result we've seen coastline vineyard change as a result of the missional community as people have joined our church um, to co-live the kingdom because they're like, it's happening and I can see it and it's doing it and I want to come and I just want to get involved. Um, and they found their own ways of um, seeing that happen. And so it, you know, it has the ability to, to really, um, yeah, change things. Um, don't get paralysis by analysis. It's really tempting when we look at all these missional models. And if you're sitting in this room, you've probably read every book out there. And there's so many, just so many different ways of doing this. And you, you can get paralysis by analysis of it all. And the thing I really want to encourage you is, go do it. Nobody has ever done this in your context, in your neighborhood, in your community. You get to pioneer this the way that you feel the spirit leads you. Um, all of the missional thinkers out there are all really writing from their own context. And so um, you can take the best and go, but don't worry if it doesn't look exactly like you think it should look. Um, but on that, 
if you would like to get paralysis by analysis. These are some really helpful people. <laughs> Really helpful thinkers. And you can take a photo of that if you want to. There's no more slides. But um, yeah, just really helpful thinkers around this whole stuff. And we have picked and we have chosen and we have said, mm, oh, that's helpful. Or, oh, that fits. Or, no, that's not, that's not helpful. Um, so the Verge Network is brilliant for um, sort of community-based stuff. Jay Pathak, The Art of Neighboring. If you want to reach a neighborhood, start by reading that book. It's great. Um, Alan Scott, his stuff around kingdom is fantastic. Um, this is not a new practice. This is very ancient. The Franciscans and the Benedictines are phenomenal thinkers. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together, which is phenomenal. And um, uh, Lance Ford and Brad Briscoe, Jeff van der Stelt, just some fantastic YouTube training. Um, and Mike Frost uh, wrote a book called Surprise the World, which, um, again, is just a really helpful missional model for, for things like that. So... We're there. I appreciate it is, we've got about three minutes, which isn't great for a Q&A. Sorry, we meant to have more than that. Um, but if, if you have any questions, if you've got any questions for John, who's our church leader, then he's here uh, about the Joy Cafe. Yeah, I mean, we're happy to hang around for as long as you want to ask questions. Um, but if you do need to go, then feel free to go. Um, yeah.